Tonight's episode is brought to you by Harry Monster Butt, survivalfeeling.com, and you, our listeners. I'm feeling it today, and if my voice gets weird or I start like drooling blood, like just kind of work with it. What is up, all of you creepy wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories of our adventures in the great outdoors. This month, we're telling spooky stories. We are exploring the intersection of the things that we cannot see that may reside out there that we might just run into as we go out exploring and trekking across this great world that we live in and exploring all the things that are out there to see, sometimes, occasionally, some of our brothers and sisters out there, they run across things that um, might defy all logic and defy all expectations of what we've come to know. And that's what we're exploring this month during our spooky series for the month of October. I am so appreciative that you guys have indulged me and allowed me to, you know, you've humored me and I appreciate that very much as I have indulged my, um, my penchant for the unexplained. It is one of my guilty pleasures. I absolutely love the things that might be what could be. I don't know what that says about me, but I also don't really care what it says about me. What I know is I love to explore everything and the unknown is one of those things I enjoy the heck out of looking into and just entertaining the thought of what could be, what might be. Again, like I say, I think we're arrogant if we think that we know the full truth about our realities and the world we live in, Um, but that's just my opinion, you know? If you think you know it all, then good on you, man. You own that. You own that. Just keep it out of my face. Give me room to do my thing, and I'll give you room to do yours, and we can all be cool with that. Before we get started talking about this week's topic, let's um, let's do a couple of disclaimers. Number one disclaimer is I had a couple of teeth pulled yesterday, and... I already taste the blood, okay? So y'all just work with me. I don't know how this is going to go for me, but we have a pretty strict production schedule with my full-time normal job that I have to go and work and then trying to get this podcast put out in the best quality with the most effort that I can put into it. I've got to stay on a pretty strict schedule, so this podcast has to get made. It has to, but my face hurts. And I'm on some pretty decent pain meds. And I know that they say to not like operate heavy machinery or drive a car, but they didn't say anything about recording a podcast. So tonight's going to be a little bit of a grand experiment for me. Like it might get a little bit weird, but whatever, we got to roll with it. Um, But yeah, I'm totally feeling it, y'all. Like I've got really long roots for my teeth. Like every dentist I've ever had in my life has like commented on that. Um, so apparently it's, it's, it's a thing that is going on in my face. And so when I have to have an extraction or some kind of serious work done, like it's an ordeal, it can be quite traumatic. So I'm feeling it today. And if my voice gets weird or I start like drooling blood, like let's just try to keep that within, you know, the thought process of, Hey, this is our spooky series for the spooky season. And, and like, just kind of work with it, just roll with it. Let's roll with the punches. Cause we got to get this out. Um, but I just want to say up front, if I get weird or 
my mouth get if I get muffled or my voice changes or anything like it's probably because I have two ginormous holes in my face. So hopefully you guys can be understanding of that because one way or another we've got to get this done. Other than that, my week has been okay. I hope you guys are having a good week. I hope that you are enjoying the spooky season. I hope you're enjoying October. I hope it's nice and cool for you wherever you are and maybe the leaves are starting to turn and fall. My daughter and I have decorated our house for autumn. Um, That's always a thing for us. It's something we greatly enjoy doing. She and I like every time we have a season change or it's, you know, her birthday too. We always got to hit her up on her birthday. And we kind of decorate the whole house. Like, we go all out. The whole house kind of becomes like a party for however long that season lasts. Um, We have streamers up everywhere and put up, you know, like little decor that you can buy at Kirkland's or wherever you go to buy your decor. So we've decorated and we're getting ready for fall. I hope you guys are doing the same and I hope that you are enjoying your fall season with your families. Um, And again, I hope that you are prepared for Halloween. Uh, much as we are and with that in mind with that that was kind of a tough segue but we made it work um with that in mind let's get on to our stories for tonight um we're gonna do one last little disclaimer here because well this is my podcast this is my platform and i can say what i want and i feel like that when you are in a position where you do kind of have a voice and you do have a reach like you you should talk a little bit about things that are important to you if you feel like other people should at least consider them um and i want to put that out there i want you guys to understand that sometimes i am an opinionated person though i try to be not so on the podcast i try to keep it accessible to everyone and kind of my principles the way i look at the world is Accept everyone, accept everyone's point of view is valid, respect it, and try to learn something from it. You know, maybe your own worldview could adjust just a little bit. Maybe it will evolve from the things you learn if you open your mind. But I do have opinions that that are going to come out sometimes. And I think we're about to touch on one of those. And I just want you to understand that I recognize it's an opinion. You can take it or leave it. But I feel very strongly about it. And I'm going to spend just a second on it because it does pertain And this is a good opportunity to bring it up because it pertains to tonight and it's going to pertain especially to next week's episode. But anyway, tonight's episode is going to be about basically mythical creatures. You know, we're going to we're going to talk about Bigfoot tonight. Let's just be straight up about it. Bigfoot is iconic. It's ubiquitous with the back countries of this great nation, like here in Oklahoma and Arkansas, like we actually have our own little bit of it. And it's not a, you know, it's, it's pop culture. It's kind of a big deal around here and in national media and world media. Um, the Pacific Northwest, one of probably the biggest hotspots ever, but we've got our own little thing here. That's quite famous. And it's all, you know, around Bigfoot and other creatures like him, like the Falk monster and the Boggy Creek monster. Um, and we're going to have some fun tonight. We're going to talk about Bigfoot. I've got two stories lined up for you that you are going to enjoy. Like, um, you will have to, like I said last week, how did I word that? Set back and watch the curtains roll back on the theater of your mind. Like, just enjoy it for what it is. But when I was thinking about this concept of we're going to do cryptic creatures, we're going to do some mythical creatures, because I mean, what bigger intersection between outdoor adventure and the unexplained, the possible supernatural, the paranormal, if you will, you know, what bigger intersection is there than mythical creatures? What I want to point out specifically, the disclaimer I just 
made pertains to this. I wanted to talk about the Skinwalker just a little bit. I love Native American lore. Like I've said before on the YouTube channel and here on the podcast, I have Native American heritage, a significant amount of it. And it's always been something near and dear to my heart. I love those stories. I love that history. And it's something that I feel a deep connection to. Um, What I did not know is how the Navajo feel about the Skinwalker. Skinwalker's a big deal, right? I mean, God, there's a whole show on what History Channel know, right? Um, Skinwalker Ranch. Um, I've heard multiple stories about it. I've listened to some in-depth podcasts that covered it over multiple series. It's fun stuff to listen to. It's fascinating stuff to listen to. But I wanted to touch on it. You know, I wanted to touch on it. And when I started to do my research, I right out of the gate came across something that I think I should read to you. And I'm going to discourse on it just a little bit after I read it. The legend of the Skinwalkers is not well understood outside of Navajo culture, mostly due to the reluctance to discuss the subject with outsiders. Traditional Navajo people are reluctant to reveal Skinwalker lore to non-Navajos or to discuss it at all amongst those that they do not trust. Adrian Keene, Cherokee Nation activist and founder of the blog Native Appropriations, has written, what happens when Rowling pulls this in? Now, this she's she's actually referencing J.K. Rowling in Harry Potter, and she pulled in something of a skinwalker to that. So this is what she's referencing. What happens when Rowling pulls this in is we as Native peoples are now opened up to a barrage of questions about those beliefs and traditions. But these are not things that need or should be discussed by outsiders at all. I'm sorry if that seems unfair. But that's how our cultures survive. I was unaware that the Navajo don't like talking about the skinwalker and that they don't care for the fact of people outside of the culture talking about it. Now, of course, they're not going to try to stop them and they can't. It's a free country. It's a free world, right? For the most part. But they and, and it's a good argument to make. Like, I mean, if they're not giving up the information easily, if at all. All we're getting as outsiders is trickles of information. So to make it even more interesting, what are we going to do? We're going to embellish. We're going to play that game of telephone. And in doing so, disrespect them and their beliefs. Like, put yourself in their shoes. For whatever it is you believe, if people who did not subscribe to your same belief system went about telling stories about your beliefs, they're inevitably going to misrepresent them like, that's just a fact. How would you feel about that? All I'm saying is, is I wasn't aware of that. So to honor that, we're not going to talk about Skinwalker. And I'm doing that on purpose because I feel like I need to make that statement. Just so it's something that you all might consider for yourselves, just as a broadening of your understanding of the world and other cultures and other peoples. Like, they don't like to talk about it. And though it would make for great audio... Hell, y'all, if I put Skinwalker on a podcast, it might get me 10,000 downloads. It might break us wide open. That stuff is hot right now. Paranormal is back, baby. It's all over the TV. It's all over kids' cartoons. Oh, my God. Some of the cartoons I've been watching with my daughter, I'm like, wow. Like, we're doing Wicca up in here. We It's it's all over the place, which I personally am all for, personally. I know a lot of you probably don't feel that way, but I'm all for it. I'm all about people being people and doing what they do and respecting what they do. Like everyone just do your own thing and have a good time with it. That's my beliefs, but that's just my opinion. Um, but it's hot. 
I could slap Skinwalker on this podcast and it might take us to the moon. But like, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use it instead to say something that I feel is important. We should respect other people's beliefs and we should, we should respect their culture, whether we believe it or not. We shouldn't be haughty. We should not be arrogant and think, well, I know what I believe is right and what they think is wrong and just, you know, screw them. Like, I don't think we should be irreverent in that way. And that that's just kind of what I want to say about it. I want to use this opportunity to point out we should just recognize that and and respect that Native Americans in particular have been on the butt end of a whole lot of stuff. But when it comes to the storytelling, because they have such rich cultural stories that are so much fun. They're so enjoyable to listen to. They're so fascinating. They're great, great stories. We have a we have a desire to tell them. We have a desire to know about them, but they are their stories and they're their culture. That is their culture, better put. And you need to understand that in Native American cultures, many of them, if not really all of them, their spiritual beliefs are their culture. They are intrinsic to their culture. And we just need to be respectful of that. We just need to be respectful of that. That's the only thing I'm really trying to say about it. And consider that it's not just them. Like I know a lot of people are really trigger happy about the whole quote unquote PC culture, but I'm kind of for it. Because even though I find it to be incredibly extreme in many cases and over the top, it's also done us a great deal of good in opening a lot of people's ears and minds, at least to the concept of we need to be respectful of other people. We need to not be demeaning, patronizing or condescending of other people like we just need to not do that. So I think that overall it's a net positive and consider like. In the Muslim faith, non-Muslims are not allowed to enter Mecca. You're not allowed to see the Kaaba stone. You're not allowed to do that if you're a non-Muslim. And they're just one example. Most religions have something of that attached to them. Spiritual beliefs are intrinsically personal. And in many cases, they don't want outsiders basically degrading that or besmirching that. Um, And so to understand that some Native Americans do not care for the idea of outsiders basically sensationalizing their spiritual beliefs. I mean, I think it's a totally fair thing for them to feel. We should respect that. Um, anyway, so we're going to get off that soapbox for right now, and we're going to get into all of the fun stuff tonight. We're basically primarily, we're just going to talk about Bigfoot. There's all manner of creatures, mythical and cryptozoological creatures out there. Um, But Bigfoot, it's a hot topic and there's a lot of information out there and they're just some of the best stories I found. Um, I need to say right up front, I don't know how I feel about Bigfoot. I'm being completely honest with you guys. Like I don't really have a stance. I'm not a quote unquote Bigfoot believer, but I'm also not a Bigfoot unbeliever. I like to think of myself as an open-minded skeptic of all things. If you can show me something to prove it to me, like I'm open to any possibility. I've seen some weird in my time and I think we all have. So I'm open to the idea that it's possible. Yeah, I get the skeptical arguments of, you know, we need a breeding population, da, 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 da. But, you know, who knows? Who knows? And again, it's spooky season. It's the month for us to allow ourselves to enjoy 
the unexplained and just kind of have a good time with it. And that's what we're going to do tonight. But I just want you guys to know, I'm not in here to try to convince you of proof of Bigfoot. Like I'm not necessarily a believer myself, but I do have a background with Bigfoot and Bigfoot research. I've mentioned before, um, I brought a couple of visual aids in here. You guys that are listening on um, your podcast players are not going to be able to see this, but you can come check it out on YouTube and watch the video. Um, I've got a couple of visual aids here I'm going to use. Um, back in 2008 and nine, I've mentioned before that I have a film and video background. Um, we produced a TV show. I hosted and produced a TV show called on the fringe with my company and all my, my homies, um, Possum Valley entertainment. Um, some of my best friends in the world and I miss those guys. Like I'm hoping to do a reunion someday and just go shoot like one show somewhere just for old times sake. But we did two shows, but the one particular and that matters tonight is, was on the fringe. And it was basically one of the first legend tripping shows that aired in Europe. Um, Some really no name, you know, can't pronounce names in Europe. It wasn't like on the European main continent. Um, But it was in Eastern Europe and it was online distribution. And you can still get some episodes of On the Fringe on Amazon. I no longer have rights to it. I sold out of that years ago. Um, So if you go buy any, like I'm not benefiting from it. Um, But... We did this show and it was a lot of fun and it was legend tripping. We went and chased down sites of urban legends and we just like explored them. And then it got kind of a little bit crazy because the, the, the distribution company, Global Broadcasting out in LA, they really got heavily on us, pressuring us to go more paranormal because ghost hunters got huge in like 2007, eight, nine ghost hunters went big. Y'all probably remember that show. So they put a lot of pressure on us to kind of follow that trend, which is not necessarily what we were after. We were shooting a documentary series and what we were trying to show is stuff doesn't always happen. Like you go out here and you can explore and check stuff out and explore all these old urban legends. And there's a lot of fun history and folklore and mythology to look into, but you know, stuff doesn't always happen. A lot of times, most of the time, nothing happens. Apparently, that doesn't make for good TV. Like, I remember getting, like, a royalty check for, like, $3.72 once. We didn't make it. That's why I work for Big Purple now, right? Like, we didn't make it. We all went basically bankrupt. Some of us did go bankrupt trying to live that dream. Didn't work out. But we had a lot of fun. And one of the things we got to do, what is pertinent to tonight, is we did an hour-long special that actually never made it to DVD because our funds ran out. And it died on the cutting room floor. But it was an hour-long special at the 2009 Honubi Bigfoot Festival and Conference in Honubi, Oklahoma. It's spelled Honobia, H-O-N-O-B-I-A, but I'm from the area, from southeast Oklahoma, and it's pronounced Honubi. So, they had a huge festival every year. This one in particular had some really big names there, and this is where I'm going to make any of you people, I know a lot of you outdoors folks are really into Bigfoot. This is where I'm going to make some of y'all jealous. If you see this on the YouTube channel, This is the flyer from that year, Um, and you see some signatures on there. The most notable amongst them is Thomas Powell, R. Scott Nelson, and I think the biggest name, the one that will catch everyone's attention, is Jeff Meldrum. He's been on TV multiple times about Bigfoot. He's actually an anthropologist. He's actually like, no, he's he's not an anthropologist, is he? He's a physiologist. Anyway, biologist, he actually has degrees. He's actually a scientist and he does things and he's applied that knowledge to the possibility of Bigfoot. And as such, he's probably one of the most notable scientific pariahs out there for actually allowing himself to consider 
that Bigfoot could be real, but he applies real science to it, and it's it's fun. But anyway, he is a super cool guy. We spent an hour and a half or longer off camera just sitting at a table at that conference with him just talking, and he's one of the most down-to-earth guys. He was so much fun to talk to. He was a fascinating guy, and it just he was very, very humble. You know, this is a guy that's on TV. This is like one of the guys, he's a big pariah. Like he could have an ego one way or another, and he didn't. He was just a super cool guy. Um, Oh, and Harvey Pratt, that's one other name on here. He's a very famous sketch artist who has gone into the realm of trying to work with Bigfoot researchers. Um, But yeah, so I've got that. And then I've got here a picture of our newspaper here in Fort Smith, the Times Record. Um, that year on October 31st on Halloween of that year, um, did a full page spread on our crew and our show in the living section of the magazine. And if you look down here at the bottom, you will see a full size, a picture of me with a quote unquote full size representation of Bigfoot that was at the festival. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. So I have a little bit of a background and we did a Bigfoot search. Like we got to interview all these guys and it was a great time, but we did a search with them deep in the Washita mountains, way back there in the back country. And they gave us access to quote unquote classified technology they were using, which now 12 years later, I think the statute of limitations and probably that classification of technology is long dead. So I'll tell you what it was. It was a huge speaker system mounted on a backpack, backpack, like playing Bigfoot calls that they think they had caught on audio recordings over the years. And they just put those audio recordings on a CD, amplified them and played them when they were out there searching. And there were several other techniques they used. But the point of the story is I got to go on a legit for real Bigfoot hunt with my crew and all of these guys, like these guys that I just said, famous researchers in the field. We were in the woods together doing a Bigfoot hunt. And I will say this, we did hear some strange noises out there and some wood knocking, which is supposedly the way Bigfoot communicates. Um, Could we have been set up? Absolutely. Could there have been people out there set up to do that specifically for us? Yes, absolutely. I don't know that, but they could have been. I'm not saying they were, and I wouldn't accuse anyone of that, but it's possible. Of course it is. I grew up in the woods. I grew up hunting and fishing and hiking. I grew up out there. I've heard mountain lions. I've heard many different noises in the woods. And I will say the noises I heard that night were unique. They were noises that I had not heard before. And I've never really heard since that I know of. Um, But we got to do this cool Bigfoot hunt with notable famous researchers in the field of Bigfoot research. Um, And God, it was a good time. Like I said, understand I'm, I'm not saying I am or am not a believer in Bigfoot. I am an open-minded skeptic when it comes to that, specifically because the science, it's very hard to support it with science, that it's there's current modern populations. It's hard to support it, but I'm open to it. I'm open to it. I want to believe it. You know, I'm like X-Files. I want to believe. I want to believe it, but... I kind of fall, like, I'd straddle the fence on this one. Um, But that was something really cool I got to do. So I have a little bit of background with Bigfoot. But we're going to tell some stories. We're going to tell a couple of stories tonight that are really, really fun stories. And we're going to start out with, before we do our commercial break, we've run on, gosh, nearly to our first half hour. Before we go to commercial break, we'll get our first story in because it's a little bit shorter and we'll devote the second half of tonight's show to the larger more comprehensive story 
Um, the first story we're going to tell is the Ape Canyon incident. This happened in 1924. This was a very, very big event in its day. Um, and it was reported by several grizzly old miners living in a shack, prospecting for gold and silver and other ores in the Mount St. Helens region of Washington state. And it's just a great story. And I love that it's almost a hundred years old now. I love that this is goes that far back. You know, people think of Bigfoot as a very modern phenomenon, but it's not. It's not at all. It goes back not just a hundred years, it goes back centuries when you get into cultural research of it. Um, but this is a great story. This is a fun story. I think you guys are going to enjoy this. So we're going to tell you now about the story of the Ape Canyon incident. This particular telling of the incident comes from Fred Beck, one of the miners that was there. It's titled, I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens, Washington. All right, from Fred Beck in 1924. First of all, I wish to give an account of the attack and tell of the famous incident of July 1924 when the hairy apes attacked our cabin. We had been prospecting for six years in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area in southwest Washington. We had, from time to time, come across large tracks by creek beds and springs. In 1924, I and four other miners were working our gold claim, the Vander White. It was two miles east of Mount St. Helens, near a deep canyon now named Ape Canyon, which was so named after an account of the incident reached the newspapers. And what he's saying there, jumping out of narrative, is Ape Canyon got its name and is still named that to this day here in 2021 because of the incident that occurred to them. This is a later retelling of the story. Back into the narrative. Hank, a great hunter and good woodsman, was always a little apprehensive after seeing the tracks. These tracks were large and we knew that no known animal could have made them. They were large and measured 19 inches long. It was the middle of July and we had received a good assay on our claim and everyone was excited. We had been hearing noises in the evening for about a week. We heard a shrill, peculiar whistling each evening. We would hear it coming from one ridge and then hear an answering whistle from another ridge. We also heard a sound which I could best describe as a booming, thumping sound, just like something was hitting itself on the chest. Hank asked me to accompany him to the spring, about a hundred yards from our cabin, to get some water and suggested we take our rifles to be on the safe side. We walked to the spring and then Hank yelled and raised his rifle and at that instant I saw it. It was a hairy creature and he was about a hundred yards away on the other side of a little canyon, standing by a pine tree. It dodged behind the tree and poked its head out from the side of the tree, and at that same time, Hank shot. I could see the bark fly out from the tree from each side of his three shots. Some might say that that was quite a distance to see the bark fly, but I saw it. The creature I judged to have been about seven feet tall with blackish-brown hair. It disappeared from our view for a short time, but then we saw it running fast and upright about 200 yards away down a little canyon. I shot three times before it disappeared from view. We took the water back to the cabin and explained the affair to the rest of the party, and we all agreed, including Hank, to go home the next morning as it would be dark before we could get to the car. We agreed it would be unsound to be caught by darkness out on the way. Nightfall found us in our pine log cabin. About midnight, we were all awakened by a tremendous thud against the wall. Then we heard a great commotion outside. 
It sounded like a great number of feet trampling and rattling over a pile of our unused shakes. We grabbed our guns. By actual count, we saw only two or three of the creatures together at one time, but it sounded like there were many, many more. This was the start of the famous attack, of which so much has been written in Washington and Oregon papers throughout the years. Most accounts tell of giant boulders being hurled against the cabin, and some even fell through the roof, but this was not quite the case. There were very few large rocks around that area. It is true that many smaller ones were hurled at the cabin, but they did not break through the roof, but hit with a bang and then rolled off. Some accounts state I was hit in the head by a rock and knocked unconscious. This is not true. The only time we shot our guns that night was when the creatures were attacking our cabin. When they would quieten down for a few minutes, we would quit shooting. I told the rest of the party that maybe if they saw we were only shooting when they attacked, they might realize we were only defending ourselves. We did shoot, however, whenever they climbed on our roof. We shot round after round through the roof. We had to brace the huge log cabin door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed. The creatures were pushing against it and the whole door vibrated from the impact. We responded by firing many more rounds through the door. They pushed against the walls of the cabin as if they were trying to push the cabin over. Hank and I did most of the shooting. The rest of the party crowded to the far end of the cabin, guns in their hands. One had a pistol, which is still in my family's possessions, and the other clutched their rifles. They seemed stunned and incredulous. The attack continued the remainder of the night, with only short intervals in between. The attack ended just before daylight, and just as soon as we were sure it was light enough to see, we came cautiously out of the cabin. It was not long before I saw one of the ape-like creatures standing about 80 yards away on the edge of Ape Canyon. I shot three times, and it toppled over the cliff down into the gorge some 400 feet below. Hank then said we should get out of there as soon as possible, and not to bother packing our supplies or our equipment. After all, he said, it's better to lose them than to lose our lives. We were all only too glad to agree. When we were back home in Kessler, Washington, Hank told some of his friends, and somehow the story leaked out to the papers, and the great hairy ape hunt of 1924 was on. So that is Fred Beck's account of the attack by the hairy ape creatures in the canyon on Mount St. Helens in Washington that is now known to this very day as Ape Canyon. Y'all, that's a wild story. I want you to take yourself out of reality for just a minute, close your eyes, and just try to let yourself imagine, what if that happened to you in a cabin? Something like it. Just something like it. What if something was outside your cabin trying to break in? And you didn't know what it was. What if it was just a bear that like wanted to get after your starburst or whatever the heck it is you like to take out there? Um, what if it was a mountain lion? Y'all, I know stories, personal stories from people, some of my relatives, some of my older relatives back in a time where our part of the country here was still wilder and we had panthers, we had mountain lions. Um, and they told stories of laying in bed at night and hearing the mountain lions walk on the tin roof of the house. This is back in like the 1930s and the 1940s. Think about that, y'all. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. And as we'll find out in a couple of episodes, our grand finale for the spooky season, that things like this have happened that weren't Bigfoot to campers just like you and I here in the modern day, like little teaser little foreshadowing give y'all something to look forward to we've got a really good way to close out the spooky season here in two weeks but just imagine being attacked by something far out in the wilderness and you're all alone and there's no quick way out and you're basically trapped 
in a cabin. That's terrifying. Um, there have been many skeptical looks at this, and he mentioned that that made it into all the newspapers in the Northwest in the night in 1924. Um, if you have a newspapers.com account, you can find some of those. They're fun stories to read, and I highly suggest having a newspapers.com account. I use it extensively for research, and I highly suggest just looking into it, guys. There could be more truth to the story than we realize. There really could be. There's a lot of interesting facts that float around about this particular incident, and there could be a lot more truth to it than we might be willing to give it credit for. And I'm going to give you another quick story that actually might stand as some more evidence, some circumstantial evidence, but more evidence to back up this specific claim, because this story happened some, what would that be, 40-ish years later, 39 years later, this story occurred in Ape Canyon. So, there might be some sand to the Ape Canyon incident. This is a fascinating story. This is about the disappearance of a skier named Jim Carter. The headline to a story by Marge Davenport, Oregon Journal staff writer in an August 1963 issue of the Longview Times, datelined Spirit Lake, Washington, is Ape Canyon Holds Unsolved Mystery, and it contains the following text. Jim Carter's complete disappearance is an unsolved mystery to this day, declared Bob Lee, a well-known Portland mountaineer. Dr. Otto Trott, Lee Stark, and I finally came to the conclusion that the apes got him, said Lee seriously. On the way down the mountain, Carter left the other climbers at a landmark called Dog's Head at the 8,000-foot mark. He told them that he would ski around to the left and take a picture of their group as they skied down the timberline. That was the last anyone ever saw of Carter. The next morning, searchers found a discarded film box at the point where he had taken a picture. From there, Carter evidently took off down the mountain on a wild, death-defying dash, taking chances that no skier of his caliber would take unless something was terribly wrong or he was being pursued. He jumped over two or three large crevasses and evidently was going like the devil. When Carter's tracks reached the precipitous sides of Ape Canyon... The searchers were amazed to see that Carter had been in such a hurry that he went right down the steep canyon walls. But they did not find him at the bottom. We combed the canyon one into the other for five days. Sometimes there were as many as 75 people in the search party. After two weeks, the search was called off. Okay, so, to nutshell that, a experienced mountaineer and skier was skiing through Ape Canyon went away from the group to take a picture of them as they skied down the slope, and then he disappeared. And when they picked up his trail the next day and searchers found his tracks, he apparently went on a mad dash in a straight line straight down the mountain, jumping crevasses and then going straight over the edge of the bluff, which is like sheer-sided wall stuff. To the bottom, no one could have survived that, but they never found his body. Okay, so... Something apparently scared that man out of his wits. He took off on a mad dash down the mountain and was never heard from again. And the people of the time concluded this happened in Ape Canyon. He took unnecessary risks for no apparent reason. He just, he went AWOL. And it looks like he was running from something. He was doing things that no experienced person on the mountain would do that are way too dangerous unless they had a reason to do it. 
It's a fascinating story. And that is a true story. That is a verifiable true story that you can look into. Jim Carter disappeared and was never found under those circumstances. And it might just add credibility. It might just lend credence to the Ape Canyon incident story. There might very well be something there in Ape Canyon that doesn't necessarily like people hanging out with it. That is the story of Ape Canyon on Mount St. Helens in Washington. Also, it's of interest to note that Mount, that area got heavily, heavily damaged in the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Um, so it's a fascinating place and somewhere that's on my bucket list, to be honest with you. The Pacific Northwest is absolutely on my bucket list to go and explore extensively, hopefully someday. Um, but it's a great story. It's a beautiful area and something you guys should go out there and check out for yourself. Maybe, maybe you can find a Harry Eight Man. There's some great hiking trails in the area. I did enough research to discover that. Um, but we're running on pretty long for our first half of the episode tonight. And we've still got a lot to go in the second half. So we're going to take this opportunity here to take our break. And uh, we'll be back after this message. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And we're back. I appreciate you guys for sticking around and supporting our sponsors. Well, let's get back to it. We've got a long-winded story to come here. This one is beefy. This is a big story. This is going to take up the whole second half of tonight's show. This story is called the Albert Ostman Bigfoot Story. Some of you may have heard of it. Um... It's a quasi-famous story in Bigfoot circles, but outside of Bigfoot circles, not many people have ever heard of it. This one is fascinating, and it's also a little bit funny. Like, it, it depends on where you come down on the whole debate. This can be laughable to some people. It's a fun story. This is a fun story. So, again, grab the popcorn. You've already rolled back the curtain on the theater in your mind. So grab the popcorn, get your Mike and Ike's, you know, grab a soda. Like we're at the, we're at the movies tonight. So, you know, movie calories don't count and sit back and relax and enjoy the story as told firsthand by Albert Ostman. You know, if, if nothing else, I think you're going to enjoy this story because you're going to get some real insight into how our forebears the, ex the explorers, the expeditionists that came before us, how they did it. Um, you're going to get a lot of insight into that. And it wasn't easy. They had a hard go. Like we drive out there in our cars now and, you know, people car camping, overlanding, you know, stuff like that. Now, these guys, it was a different world back then. I think you'll get some perspective on how they lived and how they explored at the very least. I think you will enjoy this story. So let's just get on to it. This is from Albert Ostman once again. I've always followed logging and construction work. This time I had worked over one year on a construction job and thought a good vacation was in order. 
British Columbia is famous for its lost gold mines. One is supposed to be at the head of the Toba Inlet. Why not look for this mine and I have a vacation at the same time? I took the Union Steamship boat to Lund, B.C., and from there I hired an old Indian to take me to the head of Toba Inlet. This old Indian was a very talkative old gentleman. He told me stories about gold brought out by a white man from this lost mine. This white man was a very heavy drinker, spent his money freely in saloons, but he had no trouble in getting more money. He'd always be away for a few days and then come back with a bag of gold. But one time he went to this mine and never came back, and some people had said that a Sasquatch had killed him. At that time, I had never heard of a Sasquatch, so I asked what kind of an animal he called a Sasquatch, and the Indians said, they have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people, big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were over two feet long. One old Indian saw one over eight feet tall. I told the Indian that I didn't believe in his old fables about mountain giants. It might have been some a thousand years ago, but not nowadays. The Indian said there may not be many, but they still exist. We arrived at the head of the inlet about 4 p.m. I made camp at the mouth of a creek. The Indian had supper with me, and I told him to look out for me in about three weeks. I would be camping at the same spot when I came back. Out of the narrative, three weeks. Think about that. We're soft, y'all. We're soft. We are soft. Okay. Next morning, I took my rifle with me, but left my equipment at the camp. So I decided to look around for some deer trail to lead me up into the mountains. On the way up the inlet, I had seen a pass in the mountain that I wanted to go through to see what was on the other side. I spent most of the forenoon looking for a trail, but found none, except for a hogback running down to the beach. So I swamped out a trail from there, got back to my camp about 3 p.m. and that afternoon, and I made up a pack to be ready in the morning. My equipment consisted of one 30 Winchester rifle. I had a special homemade prospecting pick, axe on one end, pick on the other. I had a leather case for this pick, which fastened to my belt, and also my sheath knife. The storekeeper at Lund was cooperative. He gave me some cans for my sugar, salt, and matches to keep them dry. My grub consisted mostly of canned stuff, except for a side of bacon, a bag of beans, four pounds of prunes, and six packets of macaroni, cheese, three pounds of pancake flour, six packets of Rye King hardtack, three rolls of snuff, one quarter seal of butter, and two one-pound cans of milk. I had two boxes of shells for my rifle. Now that's a man's man dinner right there. Prunes, macaroni and cheese, hardtack and snuff. That's how they rolled back then. Okay, back into the story. The storekeeper gave me a biscuit tin. I put a few things in that and cashed it under a windfall so I would have it when I came back here waiting for a boat to bring me out. My sleeping bag I rolled up and tied on top of my pack sack, together with my ground sheet, small frying pan, and one aluminum pot that held about a gallon. As my canned food was used, I would get plenty of empty cans to cook with. The following morning, I had an early breakfast, made up my pack, and started up this hogback. My pack must have been at least 80 pounds, besides my rifle, because after one hour I had to rest. I kept resting and climbing all that morning. At about 2 p.m. I came to a flat place below a rock bluff. There was a bunch of willow in one place, and I made a wooden spade and started digging for water. About a foot down, I got a seeping of water, so I decided to camp here for the night and scout around for the best way to get on from here. I must have been up to near a thousand feet, there was a beautiful view over the islands in the strait. Tugboats with log booms and fishing boats going in all directions. A lovely spot. 
I spent the following day prospecting around, but no signs of mineral. I found a deer trail leading towards this pass that I had seen on my way up the inlet, and then the following morning I started out early, while it was cool, and it was a steep climb with my heavy pack. After three hours' climb, I was tired and stopped to rest. On the other side of a ravine from where I was resting was a yellow spot below some small trees. I moved over there and started digging for water. I found a small spring, made a small trough from cedar bark, and got a small amount of water, and had my lunch and rested here till evening. I made it over the pass late that night. Back out of the narrative, I want to point out here, this is this man's idea of a vacation. I think for some of us it is. Like, there's a part of me, very much, very much drawn to what he's doing here. I I, I couldn't do it. I, I don't think I would want to do it for three weeks. I could? Absolutely. Like, I love bushcraft. I love this kind of stuff. We could. Many of us could. I don't know that we would want to, though. But this is this man's idea of vacation. All right. Back into the narrative. Now, I had a downhill and a good going. But I was hungry and tired, so I camped at the first bunch of trees I came to. I was trying to size up the terrain, what direction I would take from here. Towards west would lead to lowland and some other inlet, so I decided to go in a northeast direction. Had a good going and a slight downhill all day. I must have made ten miles when I came to a small spring in a big black hemlock tree. This was a lovely campsite. I spent two days here just resting and prospecting. The first night I shot a small deer. Two days later, I found an exceptionally good campsite. It was two good-sized cypress trees growing together near a rock wall with a nice spring just below those trees. I intended to make this my permanent camp. I cut lots of brush for my bed from between these trees. I rigged up a pole from this rock wall to hang my pack sack on, and I arranged some flat rocks for my fireplace for cooking. I had a really classy setup. And that's when things began to happen. I am a heavy sleeper. Not much disturbs me after I go to sleep, especially on a good bed like I had now. The next morning, I noticed that things had been disturbed during the night, but nothing missing that I could see. I roasted my grouse on a stick for breakfast. That night, I filled up the magazine of my rifle. I still had one full box of 20 shells and six shells in my coat pocket. That night, I laid my rifle under the edge of my sleeping bag. I thought a porcupine had visited me the night before, and porkies like leather so I put my shoes in the bottom of my sleeping bag. Next morning, my pack sack had been emptied out. Someone had turned the sack upside down. It was still hanging on the pole from the shoulder straps as I had hung it up, and then I noticed one half-pound package of prunes was missing. Also, my pancake flour was missing, but my salt bag was not touched. Porkies always look for salt, so I decided it must be something else than porkies. I looked for tracks but found none. I did not think it was a bear, for they always tear up and make things a mess. I kept close to camp these days in case this visitor would come back. I climbed up on a big rock where I had a good view of the camp, but nothing showed up. I was hoping it would be a porky, so I would get a good porky stew. These visits had now been going for three nights. This night it was cloudy and it looked like it might rain. I took special notice of how everything was arranged. I closed my pack sack. I did not undress. I only took off my shoes put them in the bottom of my sleeping bag. I drove my prospecting pick into one of the cypress trees so I could reach it from my bed, and I also put the rifle alongside me inside my sleeping bag. I fully intended to stay awake all night to find out who my visitor was, but apparently I fell asleep. I was awakened by something picking me up. I was half asleep, and at first I did not remember where I was. 
and as I began to get my wits together, I remembered I was on this prospecting trip and I was in my sleeping bag. My first thought was, this must be a snow slide, but there was no snow around my camp. And then I felt like I was tossed onto a horse's back, but I could feel whoever it was was walking. I tried to reason out what kind of an animal this could be. I tried to get my sheath knife and cut my way out, but I was in an almost sitting position and the knife was under me. I could not get a hold of it, but the rifle was in front of me and I had a good hold on that, but I had no intention of letting go of it. At times, I could feel my pack sack touching me, and I could feel the cans in the sack touching my back. After what seemed like an hour, I could feel that we were going up a steep hill. I could feel myself rise for every step. What was carrying me was breathing hard and sometimes gave slight coughs. Now, I knew this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the Indian had told me about. I was in a very uncomfortable position, unable to move. I was sitting on my feet, and one of the boots in the bottom of the bag was crossways with the hobnail sole up across my foot. It hurt me terribly, but I could not move. It was very hot inside. It was lucky for me this fellow's hand was not big enough to close up the whole bag when he picked me up, for there is a small hole opening at the top, otherwise I would have suffocated to death. Now he was going downhill. I could feel myself touching the ground at times, and at one time he dragged me behind him, and I could feel that he was below me. Then he seemed to get on a level ground and was going at a trot for a long time. By this time, I had cramps in my leg and the pain was terrible. I was wishing he would get to his destination soon because I could not stand this type of transportation much longer. Now, he's going back uphill again and it did not hurt me so bad. I tried to estimate the distance and directions. As near as I could guess, we were about three hours traveling. I had no idea when he started as I was asleep when he picked me up. Finally, he stopped and let me down. Then he dropped my pack sack. I could hear the cans rattle. Then I heard chatter. Some kind of talk that I did not understand. The ground was sloping so that when he let me go out of my bag, I rolled downhill. I got my head out, got some air, and I tried to straighten my legs and crawl out, but my legs were absolutely numb. It was still dark. I could not see what my captors looked like. I tried to massage my legs to get some life in them and get my shoes on. I could hear now it was at least four of them, and they were standing around me and continuously chattering. I had never heard of Sasquatch before the Indian told me about them, but now I knew that I was right among them. But how to get away from them? That was another question. I got to see the outline of them now as it was beginning to get lighter, although the sky was cloudy and it looked like rain. In fact, there was a slight sprinkle. I now had circulation in my legs, but my left foot was very sore on top where it had been resting on my hobnail boots. I got my boots out from the sleeping bag and tried to stand up. I found that I was wobbly on my feet, but I had a good hold on my rifle. I asked, what you fellas want with me? And only got some more chatter in response. It was getting lighter now, and I could see them quite clearly. I could make out forms of four people, two big and two little ones. They were all covered with hair and no clothes on at all. I could now make out the mountains all around me. I looked at my watch and it was 4.25 a.m. It was getting lighter now and I could see the people clearly. They looked like a family. An old man, an old lady, and two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady did not seem too pleased about the old man dragging me home. But the old man was waving his arms and telling all of them about what he had in mind. And they all left me. Like, I told you this was going to be fun. 
I had my compass and my prospecting glass on strings around my neck, the compass in my left-hand shirt pocket and my glass in my right-hand pocket. I tried to reason our location and where I was. I could see now that I was in a small valley or a basin, about 8 by 10 acres, surrounded by high mountains. On the southeast side, there was a V-shaped opening about 8 feet wide at the bottom and about 20 feet high at the highest point. That must be the way I came in. But how will I get out? The old man was sitting near this opening. I moved my belongings up close to the west wall. There were two small cypress trees there, and this will have to do for a shelter for the time being. At least until I found out what these people want with me and how to get away from here. I emptied out my pack sack to see what I had left in the line of food. All my canned meat and vegetables were intact, and I had one can of coffee. Also, three small cans of milk, two packages of Rye King hardtack, and my butter sealer half full of butter. But my prunes and macaroni were missing. Also, my full box of shells for my rifle. I had my sheath knife, but my prospecting pick was missing in my can of matches. I only had my safety box full, and that held only about a dozen matches. That did not worry me. I can always start a fire with my prospecting glass when the sun is shining, if I got dry wood. I wanted hot coffee, but I had no wood, and also nothing around here that looked like wood. I had a good look over the valley from where I was, but the boy and girl were always watching me from behind some juniper bush. I decided there must be some water around here. The ground was leaning towards the opening in the wall, and there must be water at the upper end of this valley. There's green grass and moss along the bottom. All my utensils were left behind. I opened my coffee tin and emptied the coffee into a dish towel and tied it up with a metal strip from the can. I took my rifle and the can and went looking for water. Right at the head under a cliff, there was a lovely spring that disappeared underground. I got a drink and a full can of water. When I got back, the young boy was looking over my belongings, but he didn't touch anything. On my way back, I noticed where these people were sleeping. On the east side wall of this valley was a shelf in the mountainside, with overhanging rock looking somewhat like a big undercut in a big tree about 10 feet deep and 30 feet wide. The floor was covered with lots of dry moss, and they had some kind of blankets woven of narrow strips of cedar bark packed with dry moss. They looked very practical and warm, with no need of washing. The first day, not much happened. I had tried to eat my food cold. The young fellow was coming near me and seemed curious about me. My one snuff box was empty, so I threw it towards him. When he saw it coming, he sprang up as quick as a cat and grabbed it. He went over to his sister and showed her. They found out how to open and close it, and they spent a long time playing with it. And then he trotted over to the old man and showed him. They had a long chatter. Next morning, I made up my mind to leave this place. If I had to shoot my way out. I could not stay much longer. And I had only enough grub to last me until I got back to Toba Inlet. I did not know the direction, but I would go downhill and I would come out near civilization someplace. I rolled up my sleeping bag, put that inside my pack sack, packed the few cans I had, swung the sack on my back, injected the shell of my barrel and my rifle, and started for the opening in the wall. The old man got up, held up his hands as though he was pushing me back. I pointed to the opening that I wanted to go out, but he stood there pushing towards me and said something that sounded like soka soka. I backed up about 60 feet. I did not want to be too close, I thought, if I had to shoot my way out. A 30-30 might not have much effect on this fellow. It might make him mad. I only had six shells, so I decided to wait. There must be a better way than killing him in order to get out from here. So I went back to my campsite to figure out some other way to get out. I could make friends with this young fellow or the girl. They might help me, if I could only talk to them. 
Then I thought of a fellow who saved himself from a mad bull by blinding him with snuff in his eyes. But how will I get near enough to this fellow to put snuff in his eyes? So I decided next time I'll give the young fellow my snuff box and leave a few grains of snuff in it. He might give the old man a taste of it. But the question is, in what direction will I go if I should get out? I must have been near 25 miles northeast of Tova Inlet when I was kidnapped. This fellow must have traveled at least 25 miles in the three hours he carried me. If he went west, we could be near Saltwater. Same thing if he went south. Therefore, he must have gone northeast. If I can then go south over two mountains, I must hit Saltwater someplace between Lund and Vancouver. So this guy's reasoning out here. He's reasoning out his thought processes how he's going to get out of here and what he's going to do when he does. And all of this is just accepting the fact that he is being held captive by a family of naked Bigfoots. This is a fun story. I told you it was. All right, let's get back into the narrative. Y'all bear with me on this next passage. It reads really tough. Okay, this is an original narrative. This is as this man spoke, and I'm going to try to read through it. It's going to be hard to follow because it's hard for me to follow. So just bear with me. The following day, I did not see the old lady till about 4 p.m. She came home with her arms full of grass and twigs and all kinds of spruce and hemlock, as well as some kinds of nuts that grow in the ground. I've seen lots of those nuts on Vancouver Island. This young fellow went up to the mountain to the east every day. He could climb better than a mountain goat. He picked some kind of sweet grass with long, sweet roots, and he gave me some one day, and they tasted very sweet. I gave him another snuff box with a teaspoon of snuff in it. He tasted it, then went to the old man and licked it with his tongue. They had a long chat. Okay, this is where it gets hard to follow. Just stay with me. I made a dipper from a milk can. I made many dippers. You can use them for pots, too. You cut two slits near the top of any can, then cut a limb from any small tree. Cut down back of the limb, down the stem, of the tree. Then taper the part you cut from the stem. Then cut a hole in the tapered part. Slide the tapered part in the slit you've made in the can. And you have a good handle on your can. I don't even know why he just explained that. I probably should have just omitted it. But anyway. I threw one over to the young fellow that was playing near my camp. And he picked it up and looked at it. And he went to the old man and showed him. They had a long chatter about that, too. Then he came to me, pointed at the dipper, and then at his sister. I could see that he wanted one for her, too. I had other peas and carrots, so I made one for his sister. He was standing only eight feet away from me. When I had made the dipper, I dipped it in water and drank from it, and he was very pleased. Almost smiled at me. Then I took a chew of snuff, smacked my lips, and said, That's good. The young fellow pointed to the old man and said something that sounded like ook. I got the idea that the old man liked snuff, and the young fellow wanted the box for the old man. I shook my head, and I motioned with my hands for the old man to come to me. I do not think the young fellow understood what I meant. He went to his sister, gave her the dipper I'd made for her. They did not come near me again that day, and I had been here now for six days, but I was sure I was making progress. If only I could get the old man to come over to me, get him to eat a full box of snuff, then that would kill him for sure. And that way kill himself, and I wouldn't be guilty of murder. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I forgot about that line. I'm sorry. That made me laugh. Um, This next paragraph is interesting, but not going to 
not going to change it or censor it or omit anything in any way. It's just weird. Just fair warning. It's weird. I don't know why he goes into explaining this the way he does. But this is the original account, and here it is as it was written. The old lady was a meek old thing. The young fellow was by this time quite friendly. The girl would not hurt anybody. Her chest was flat like a boy's. No development like young ladies. I am sure if I could get the old man out of the way, I could easily have brought this girl out with me to be civilized. But what good would that have been? I would have had to keep her in a cage for public display. And I don't think we have any right to force our way of life on other people. And I don't think that they would like it. I don't think they would like the noise and racket of a modern city any more than I do. Okay, next paragraph. Moving on. The young fellow might have been between 11 and 18 years old and about 7 feet tall and might have weighed about 300 pounds. His chest would have been 50 to 55 inches, his waist around 36 to 38 inches. He had wide jaws, narrow forehead that slanted upward around at the back about 4 or 5 inches higher than the forehead. The hair on their heads was about 6 inches long. The hair on the rest of their body was short and thick in places. The woman's hair on the forehead had an upward turn like some women have. They call it bangs among women's hairdos. Nowadays, the old lady could have been anything between 40 to 70 years old. She was seven feet tall or so, and she would have been around five to 600 pounds. Okay, here's another section of paragraph that I'm going to read to be true to the story. Just bear with me and, you know, understand when it was written and and have a laugh at it. That's the best thing I can say. She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. She was not built for beauty, nor for speed. Some of those lovable braziers and uplifts would have been a great improvement on her looks and her figure. (sighs) The man's eye teeth were longer than the rest of the teeth, but not long enough to be called tusk. The old man must have been near eight feet tall, big barrel chest and big hump on his back, powerful shoulders. His biceps on upper arm were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well proportioned. His hands were wide, the palm was long and broad, and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels, and the only place they had no hair was on the inside of their hands and the soles of their feet, and the upper part of their nose and their eyelids. I never did see their ears. They were covered with hair hanging over them. If the old man were to wear a collar, it would be at least 30 inches. I have no idea what size shoes they would need. I was watching the young fellow's foot one day while he was sitting down. The soles of his feet seemed to be padded like a dog's foot, and the big toe was longer than the rest and very strong. In mountain climbing, all he needed was footing for his big toe. They were very agile. To sit down, they turned their knees out and came straight down. To rise, they came straight up without help of arms or hands. I don't think this valley was their permanent home. I think they moved from place to place as food is available in different localities. They might eat meat, but I never saw them eat meat or do any kind of cooking. I think this was probably a stopover place and the plants with sweet roots on the mountainside might have been in season this time of year. They seem to be the most interested in them. The roots have a very sweet and satisfying taste. They always seem to do everything for a reason and wasted no time on anything that they did not need. When they were not looking for food, the old man and the old lady were resting, but the boy and the girl were always climbing or some other kind of exercise. A favorite position was to take hold of his feet with his hands and balance on his rump and then bounce forward. The idea seemed to be to see how far he could go without his feet or his hands touching the ground. Sometimes he made 20 feet. But what do they want with me? 
They must understand that I cannot stay here indefinitely. I will soon have to make a break for freedom. Not that I was mistreated in any way. One consolation was that the old man was coming closer each day and was very interested in my snuff, watching me when I take a pinch of snuff. He seems to think it's useless to put it only inside my lips. One morning after I had my breakfast, both the old man and the boy came and sat down only ten feet away from me. This morning I made coffee. I had saved up all the dry branches I had found and I had some dry moss and I used the labels from the can to start a fire. I got my coffee pot boiling and it was a strong coffee too and the aroma from the boiling coffee was what brought them over. I was sitting eating hardtack with plenty of butter on it and sipping coffee and it sure tasted good. I was smacking my lips and pretending it was better than it really was. I set the can down that was about half full and I intended to warm it up later. I pulled out a full box of snuff took a big old chew, and before I had time to close the box, the old man reached for it. I was afraid he would waste it, and I only had two more boxes, so I held on to the box, intending him to take a pinch like I had just done. Instead, he grabbed the box and emptied it in his mouth, and he swallowed it in one gulp. Then he licked the box on the inside with his tongue. After a few minutes, his eyes began to roll over in his head. He was looking straight up. I could see that he was sick. And then he grabbed my coffee can that was quite cold by this time and he emptied that in his mouth, grounds and all. That did him no good. He stuck his head between his legs and rolled forward a few times away from me. Then he began to squeal like a pig. I grabbed my rifle and I said to myself, this is it. If he comes for me, I'll shoot him plumb between his eyes. But when he started for the spring, because he needed water, I packed my sleeping bag in my pack sack with the few cans I had left and took off. The young fellow ran over to his mother and then she began to squeal. I started for the opening in the wall, and I just made it. The old lady was right behind me. I fired one shot at the rock over her head. I guess she'd never seen a rifle before. She turned and ran inside the wall. I injected another shell into the barrel of my rifle and started downhill, looking back over my shoulder every so often to see if I was being followed. I was in a canyon, and good traveling, and I made fast time. Must have made it three miles in some world record time. I came to a turn in the canyon and I had the sun on my left and that meant I was going south. When the canyon turned west, I decided to climb the ridge ahead of me. I knew that I must have two mountain ridges between me and saltwater, and by climbing this ridge I would have a good view of this canyon so I could see if the Sasquatch were coming after me. I had a light pack and I was making good time up this hill. I stopped soon after to look back to where I came from, but nobody followed me. As I came over the ridge, I could see Mount Baker, and then I knew I was going in the right direction. I was hungry and tired. I opened my pack sack to see what I had to eat. I decided to rest here for a while. I had a good view of the mountainside, and if the old man was coming, I had the advantage because I was above him. To get me, he would have to come up a steep hill and that might not be so easy after stopping a few 30-30 bullets. I had made my mind up that this was my last chance, and it would be a fight to the finish. So I rested here for two hours. It was 3 p.m. when I started down the mountainside. It was nice going, not too steep, and not too much underbrush. When I got near the bottom, I shot a big blue grouse. She was sitting on a windfall, looking right at me only a 100 feet away. I shot her neck right off. I made it down to the creek at the bottom of the canyon, and I felt that I was safe now. So I made a fire between two big boulders and roasted the grouse. Next morning when I woke up, I was feeling terrible. My feet were sore, my socks were dirty, 
My legs were sore, my stomach was upset from that grouse I had eaten the night before, and I was not too sure I was going to make it up that mountain. I finally made the top, but it took me six hours to get there. It was cloudy, with visibility of about a mile. I knew I had to go downhill, and after about two hours I got down to the heavy timber and sat down to rest. I could hear a motor running hard at times and then stop. I listened to this for a while and decided it was the sound from a gas donkey. Somebody was logging in the neighborhood. I told them I was a prospector and I was lost. I did not like to tell them that I had been kidnapped by a Sasquatch. As if I had told them, they probably would have said, this man's crazy. The following day, I went down from this camp on the Salmon Arm branch of the inlet. From there, I got the Union boat back to Vancouver. That was my last prospecting trip and my only experience with what is known as Sasquatches. I know that in 1924, there were four Sasquatches living, though now it might only be two. The old man and the old lady might be dead by this time. And that is from Sasquatch, The Apes Amongst Us by John Green, 1978, British Columbia, Canada, Hancock House. That was an interview with Fred Beck. I told you that that was going to be a fun story. Um... And I think it's a great one to end our night on as we talk about mythical creatures. That is one of the oldest. That goes back to 1924 as well as the other, the Ape Canyon incident. Um, They're great stories. They're fun stories. They're fascinating stories with a lot of details. And, you know, where were they getting their information then? You know, they're oral traditions, legends, myths. There was no TV yet. All they had was radio, really, and that wasn't accessible to very many people a lot of the time these stories go far 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 back these kinds of legends the places that these men would have heard these kinds of things even if they were just telling a fib they didn't make it up out of whole cloth they did not make it up out of whole cloth they took it from somewhere and that's the fascination that i think i have with it is anthropologically speaking let's say that bigfoot does not exist today what if what we have of Bigfoot is simply the historical game of telephone that's gone down for thousands of years to a time when maybe there was still a Bigfoot? There was still possibly something like a Gigantopithecus. Or, for example, modern day, the coelacanth. I know everybody goes to that, but it was considered to be like a prehistoric. It was a fossil. It had been considered to be extinct for like ever, ever and ever. And then suddenly we found one. One had survived. It is known as a living fossil. Look into a coelacanth. that's spelled funny. C-O-E-L. And then, you know, figure out the rest. But, guys, you never know. You never know. I just, I love to think it's even possible that maybe we did have some kind of a huge woodland ape that made it into, say, just six or 7,000 years ago. Something that oral tradition could be passed down long enough that we get to the stories that we have today. That's the fun of all of this. We're telling stories. We're telling folklore, we're telling myth, we're telling legend, and who knows, we might just be surprised someday. We might just get surprised someday. Gosh, look at some of the hominids that have been discovered. Look at Homo florensis. Like, no, florensiensis. Yeah, Homo florensiensis. Like, on the from the Isle of Florence. Google that. If you've never heard of that, Google that. Like, we had, for real, little people. Just like the pygmy tribes of Africa, which apparently now pygmy is no longer PC, though a lot of scientists still use it. So I, I don't even know the proper term, but we have very small statured humans still alive on this planet. And we found evidence of entire races of small statured humans like, I don't know, little people. 
And I'm not talking like little people like we have today. I mean, like of legend and lore, you know, like the little people that live in the woods, like next week's episode foreshadowing. So let's get done with tonight and let's get out of here so I can edit this bad boy and get to researching the rest that I need to do for next week's episode. That's going to be a fun one. I hope to see you guys back for it. And I hope you enjoyed tonight. There was a lot of reading tonight. I hope my voice didn't get too monotone. I started to annoy myself. Full full disclosure, I started to annoy myself like halfway through Albert Oathman's story. I felt like I was droning. And then I started stumbling over words. And then it got worse. And this is going to end up getting edited a lot anyway. But I hope you guys stayed with me. I hope you found it entertaining. Um, I just want to thank you guys for checking us out every week. I want to thank you guys for telling your friends. We're starting to see upticks and and surges in our downloads and, you know, we're nowhere near where we need to be. So I just want to urge you guys, if you want to help grow the show, if you want to really support me, what's really going to support me is to rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening. That I'm telling you, you have no idea. That's game changer stuff. If you can take two minutes to just give me some stars, however many you think is fair, and say, hey, I kind of like this. And also, really big, tell your friends. We grow by word of mouth. That is the massive growth comes from word of mouth. So if you guys want to help us out, rate, review, and subscribe and tell people about us. That would do us the most good. If you have any stories of your own that you want told here on the show to share with all your fellow listeners, mywaywardstory at gmail.com. Send them in, baby. We're going to line it up, and we are here to share all the stories. And if you want to check out my Instagram, my YouTube, our photo galleries, or anything else, as always, waywardstories.com. And that's about it, guys. That's it for this week. This is a long episode. I hope you stayed and made it through all of it. Um, Until next week, I hope you enjoy your spooky season. And, you know, get out there. Do something good in the world. 